morning. My name is Carlton Wynn. It's wonderful to worship with you again. I've had the privilege of being with this congregation a couple of times before, and it is a special privilege to be invited by your session to, to preach while your pastor's away. Uh, believe it or not, you're going to have me for the next five weeks, and uh, it will be a delight. And in an attempt to provide some kind of uh, coherent theme for our five weeks together, I wanted to give you a preview of what my plan is from the Word of God. Uh, since your pastor is beginning his sabbatical, I thought it would be fitting to have a series of sermons on beginnings. And so today we'll be looking at the very beginning from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, next week we'll look at the beginning of a journey, a journey taken by one of the patriarchs named Jacob from Genesis chapter 28. And then we'll look at the beginning of Jesus' earthly life as a baby in Luke 2. Then the beginning of Jesus' heavenly ministry uh, in his resurrection. And then finally the beginning of John's ministry in exile from Revelation chapter 2. So we're going to work from Genesis to Revelation in the next five weeks and it will be a delight. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. You'll find that not only printed in your bulletin, but, but in the Pew Bible before you on page 1. And I want to read from verses 26 of chapter 1 through verse 3 of chapter 2. And as I read, let's give our attention to it as the very written and inerrant Word of God for you and for me this morning. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. Would you pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help? Our Father in heaven, we know that this is your word, 
breathed out by the power of the Holy Spirit, that through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Father, as we consider even this morning the good gifts that You have poured out upon us, our eyes are lifted to You as the source of every good and perfect gift. As we consider our own weakness and sins and failures, even this morning, we know that You are our only Redeemer and our hope in the midst of this fallen world. Father, we pray that You would send forth Your Spirit, that in Christ Jesus we might behold wonderful things in Your law. Conform us now more and more to the image of our crucified and ascended Savior, that You might receive all of the glory and praise and honor that You are due. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this portion of Scripture contains some of the most significant words ever written in the history of the world. But if you're a regular churchgoer, if you're a regular Bible reader, chances are these words can become so familiar to you that we risk taking them for granted. And we can easily forget that these words from Genesis 1 answer one of the most fundamental questions we can ask. That is the question... Who am I? Every worldview, every outlook, every human being must wrestle with this question. It's a question that has been asked by little children. It's been studied by the most brilliant philosophers. It's a question pondered by teenagers, asked by adults, young and old. It's a question posed by introverts and extroverts. It's a question that comes to those whose lives have been turned upside down by tragedy and loss. It's a question asked by those thrilled by life and by those facing death. And the answer to the question, who am I, is vitally important because whatever answer we give is going to come with a host of other beliefs about where we came from, about why we exist, about what our purpose is in this life and beyond. And the world is not slow to give us answers to the question, who am I? To take one example, the militant atheist Daniel Dennett has written that human beings are the products of inescapable, blind physical forces, such that human beings, he says, are nothing more than moist robots. Now, I realize that today is Daylight Savings Day, and if any Sunday morning you feel like a moist robot, it might be this morning. Uh, but what is Dennett saying? He's saying that we are an accident of nature. We are beings with no design and no purpose to guide our lives. Or take the wider secular culture around us, which largely assumes that if we are designed at all, it must be by our own design. Sinclair Ferguson says this, Today the question, who am I, is an expression of widespread confusion. So much confusion that the answer that is given in so many schools in the Western world, by so many governments in the Western world, by so many thought leaders in the Western world, and by many pressure groups in the Western world, is this. You must decide who you are. We do not know who you are. You must decide the issue. And what we're seeing in our world today are the tragic effects 
of turning away from the only answer that can satisfy our souls and bring us back into touch with reality. Because the answer to the question, who am I, from the living word of the living God, is that we are the image of the uncreated Lord of glory, the God of all goodness and blessing and power. We are human beings made by God, designed to live for God in fellowship with God. Now, many Bible scholars have challenged this, arguing that that while Genesis teaches that we are God's image, they say it doesn't give us much insight into what it means to be God's image. I want to challenge that way of thinking with you this morning by looking more carefully at our text. And what we're going to see from Genesis 1 is this, that as the image of God, we are called to image God in all that we say and do, ultimately out of faith in Jesus Christ, so that we find our ultimate joy and rest in God as our refuge and eternal reward. As the image of God, we are to image God in all that we say and do, ultimately through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we find our ultimate joy and rest in God as our refuge and eternal reward. I want to unpack that by looking at three things in our text. And the first comes in verses 26 and 27. And that is the uniqueness of being God's image. The uniqueness of being God's image. This comes through strikingly in verse 26. This is the stunning announcement by God that on this final act of his final day of creating, uh, that human beings will be the unique climax of all of his created works. He says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, these words that are so familiar to us in context are designed to jump off the page, as it were. Because up to this point in Genesis, God has been creating various realms of creation. The visible sky, the waters below, uh, the land. And at every point, he has then filled in these realms of creation with various inhabitants, the sun and the moon and the stars, the birds of the heavens, the sea creatures, the land animals that creep on the earth. And at every point of this creating and filling activity, God has been issuing a pattern of commands. Let there be light. Let the waters be gathered together. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. God commands his creation to do things. So much so that at the end of day six, with the creation of man, male and female, we would expect the text to say, and let the earth bring forth man. But that's not what we find, is it? No, instead of God's commanding creation, what we see is God consulting with himself, as it were, announcing that he's about to do something wonderful. John Calvin says of verse 26, God gives tribute to the excellency of man by testifying that he's about to undertake something great and wonderful. 
We see another surprising turn in the context of the text with verse 26, just when we compare it to verses 24 and 25. In those verses, God is creating the various kinds of land animals. Let me read verses 24 and 25. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. One scholar says that this is giving off a sense of monotonous, monotonous, rhythmic patterns. God is saying, as it were, that everything is fit according to the kind of thing that it is. But when it gets to human beings, male and female, it's as though God says, let us make man according to our kind, after our image. God is saying, everything has a design suited to it, but with this, the crown of my creation, I, the true and living God, will be the blueprint for this my creation. Verse 27 follows on its heels in almost an outburst of poetic praise. The author says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. It's almost as though he's saying, God created man in his own image. Can you believe it? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be God's image? That's the question, isn't it? Well, it means that in our essence, every human being reflects the personhood and dignity and glory of God. It means that your whole being, body and soul, is of infinite value beyond anything else in creation. It means that regardless of the tragic effects of sin upon human biology and psychology and relationships and society, all human beings live and move and have their being before the face of God. And one application of this we know is that Christians should unashamedly affirm the profound and inherent and equal dignity of every member of the human family, irrespective of age or size or stage of development or handicap or condition of dependency or even life choices or behavior or addictions or illnesses or sins, every human being is inescapably the image of God. And yet we live in a world where we breathe the air of a culture of death. Uh, we know that there have been times in human history, in many ways even today, where we hear voices saying, no, you must be wanted. You must be productive. You must be healthy and gifted and beautiful and liked and successful in order to have the right to live. And God comes to us in his word and he says, no. Just living as a human being is a holy thing and a testimony to the grace of God. Because every individual is the image of God, no one needs to reach some threshold of ability or productivity in order to be a life worthy of life. And so how right and good it is for Christians to work for the recognition 
of the intrinsic value of all ethnicities and nationalities and ages and either gender, treasuring the gift of life from conception to natural death. So I want to ask you this morning, is this how you live? Is this how you treat the man or the woman on the street? Is this the framework in terms of which you're, you're raising your family, your children? Now certainly the fact that we are inescapably the unique image of God doesn't mean that God hasn't given His image something to do, a way to live. And so we come to the second thing we need to see in our text beyond just the uniqueness of being God's image. Second, notice the calling of the image of God. We can put it like this. As the image of God... We are called to image God in righteousness and holiness. As we reflect our personal God in our essence, we are also called to reflect His glory in how we live. And how are we to know how to live? Well, obviously from His Word, He has told us how to live. We see this in our text, in the calling that God gives to Adam and Eve in verses Uh, 27 and 28, after creating them in verse 27, the text goes on to say this, and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now remember, God has spent the the creation week creating these various realms and filling them with inhabitants and now he turns to his created image. And he calls man and woman, male and female, to mimic him by stewarding and filling the world that he has made. Adam and Eve were to delight in one another as husband and wife. They were to unearth the treasures of the world. They were to rule in wisdom as God's little king and queen and offer all of it up as a sacrifice of praise to God. And what's the point of all of this? Why have God's image populate and fill the earth and reflect His glory? Well, to ask the question is to answer it, isn't it? The prophet Habakkuk tells us in Habakkuk 2.14, it is all so that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God created human beings as the crown of creation so that all the earth would be a mirror of His glory as it is revealed in the heavenly places. God created human beings that they might find their eternal joy and satisfaction in Him as their God. That we would, as it were, mimic the angels who adore God in the heavenly places. And, and we pray for this in the Christian life, don't we? We know that this is true. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Lord, your will, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Well, it's done cheerfully and thoroughly and completely and with great joy and satisfaction. And we pray in this prayer that we would that we would have hearts and manifest in the world this similar kind of obedience to His Word. But we pray for this 
because we know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We know that God's will is not revealed on the earth as it is in heaven. We know that sin and death have ravaged creation. We know that sin has infected our hearts from the time of the fall. And and this effect in all of us means that from birth we are by nature locked in utter rebellion against the God who created us. That we seek to turn away from Him and His Word. That we seek to scrape off whatever remnant of the image of God remains in us. All to our ultimate destruction apart from His grace. We take His Word as as good advice, but not as the Word of our Creator and our King. Paul describes this turning away from God as His image. Uh, Paul describes our turning away from our calling as his image as a kind of exchange. He says in Romans 1, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We exchange the glory that we are called to reflect back to God for things that he has made. But if we are to reflect heaven, if we are to fulfill our calling as his image, what we desperately need is one to come from heaven, to forgive and to restore and to renew us according to our native design. And this is the gospel, isn't it? That there is one from heaven who has come. The apostle Paul calls the divine son the image of the invisible God. Paul is saying that the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the very image of the Father, meaning all that the Father is as God, the Son is as well. He is the image of the invisible God as the true and living Son of God. Hebrews 1.3 calls him the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this son, this image of the father, came from the father's side and was clothed in our created nature. So he was the image twice over. And as a man, every day on his life, in his life on earth, in his words and his actions, He demonstrated what it means to image God in righteousness and holiness. So that if the angels were to look down from heaven and and see Christ as we know that they did, and if they were to hear him speak and watch him heal the sick and raise the dead and love the sinner and raise up those who are cast down, they they would turn to one another, as it were, and say, he's just like his father. Isn't this what Jesus said to Philip? He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When you think about it, it's true. We see the Father's wisdom in the Son's incarnation. We see the Father's righteousness in his obedience unto death. We see the Father's truth in all the words that Jesus spoke. We see the Father's compassion in His miracles. 
But we see the Father's justice in His death on the cross. We see the Father's power in His resurrection. We see the Father's fellowship with His Son in His ascension. And we see the Father's love for the church in the Holy Spirit that Jesus has ascended has poured out. And that Spirit, according to God's infinite wisdom and grace, has sought you out if you know Him through the power of the Gospel and has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light that you may proclaim the excellencies of your God and Creator. Oh, how the Lord loves those made in His image. We see it in our text in verse 29. God turns to Adam and Eve and He says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. In, in its fruit. Our first parents lacked nothing that they would need to live for the glory of God. And yet we know that they turned away from that. And as God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the word and the ministry of his gospel, God gives us an even greater promise than the promise he gave to Adam and Eve. He, he turns to his people and he promises to give us all that we need to live for him in this life. 2 Peter 1.3 says... His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And so I want to ask you another question. What do you need to live for God that God is not willing to give you? The answer is nothing. What do you need to live for God in your own station this week? Greater patience. A greater prayer. What do you need for enduring temptation? Uh, for greater holiness? For more love for the church? For more compassion for those without Christ? For enduring grace in the midst of suffering? What has God promised to give that will not supply every need of yours out of His riches and glory in Christ. He's promised everything. And we know that He's promised everything that we need because God has promised us nothing less than Himself. And this brings us to the third thing we see in our text. Not only the uniqueness of being God's image and the calling of God's image, but third, the goal of God's image. Now you might ask, we're here on page one in our Bibles at the beginning, where is the goal? Well, the goal is right there in Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. It says this, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God had been working throughout the creation week, and the text says He entered into His heavenly rest. Now, this is not a rest of exhaustion. This is the rest of God entering into Sabbath enthronement as the King, surveying the finished work of His hands and giving it His divine approval that it is all very good. And just as he commanded Adam to reflect his glory and righteousness and holiness together with Eve, 
So Adam was to work in sinless fellowship with God and on the far side of that obedience enter into the Sabbath rest for which he was made. Adam was to bring himself and all of those whom he represented into the Sabbath rest of God in heaven. Friends, this is the goal of God's created image. Eternal fellowship with the triune God in the splendor of heaven forever. This is what we were made for. This is what you were made for. Face-to-face fellowship with God in body and soul forever. This is what our gathering in Sunday morning anticipates in some small way. Fourth century theologian Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Even from the beginning, God's image in Eden was to live before God's face, to reflect his glory and obedience, and as their reward, enter into unbreakable fellowship with God. And we know again that Adam and Eve did not enter into that heavenly rest. Instead, they were expelled from that original holy land. They were cut off from the tree of life and all that it symbolized for them. And ever since that day, you and I have felt a restlessness in our soul that only one can satisfy. And Jesus Christ, as the unique image of God, He is the one who has fulfilled our calling as the image of God. And you know that after His death and resurrection, He ascended in the power of the Holy Spirit and entered into the glory of heaven itself to sit as God's right hand as King and Lord of creation. Friends, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has entered into the Sabbath rest for which you were made. And by His Word from heaven, He calls to you to come to Him that you might find rest. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gives us rest as the one who has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And He offers you the rest of reconciliation with God. He offers you the rest of forgiveness of all of your sin. He offers you the rest of life by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. He offers you the kind of rest that by faith makes us more and more restless to do His will. And one day, He will come again in glory and power and He will welcome us into the very paradise of heaven to behold His face that we might delight in final and consummate Sabbath rest forever and ever. Hebrews 4 puts it this way, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see, friends, Genesis 1 provides a multi-layered answer to the all-important question, who am I? And it brings along with it all the answers we need about where we came from. 
about what our calling is in this life and what our ultimate goal is in this life. You are the created image of the uncreated God, called to image Him in all that you do, ultimately through faith in Jesus Christ, so that you might find your ultimate joy and rest in God as your refuge and eternal reward. And as we survey these words from Genesis 1, we also realize that as we read the rest of our Bibles in their light, these words provide a foundation on which to behold the glorious work of King Jesus in the Gospel. He is the one who has shown us the Father, the one who has made us in His image. Jesus is the one who, by His redeeming work, works in us all that is pleasing in God's sight. And He is the one who will bring us all the way home to where He is, that we might behold His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Praise God that we have borne the image of the man of dust, and for that reason, in Christ, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And what God has promised, He will fulfill quickly and without delay. Let us pray. Father, we delight at the wonder of being created as your very image. Father, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us reflect your glory in thought and word and deed. And we need you to bring us all the way to our heavenly rest. And we thank you that as you have joined us to Christ, the one who has already entered into heaven itself, that we can look to Him and know that all that You have promised will be fulfilled, for all of Your promises are yes and amen in Him. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Well, let's stand.